All right. Um, this week we have got to start with a real quick review. We we got through a ton of stuff last week, but there were a couple of things kind of left dangling um, that I wanted to go back over. So I'm going to do just a little bit of review and back us up. Going back to the uh, chapters one through three, um, where we see the forerunner presented to us. One of the things that I noted about the forerunner was his name. Did anybody look up John's name by chance? Do you remember what his name means? Remember, who is it that named John? The angel did. So what does that tell you about who the author is of his name? God the Father. So isn't that an interesting thought to know? God the Father named you. If, if that, you know, I, w- I just think that that's an, an uh, kind of an exciting little quality about this storyline. It's subtle, but it's there. And um, the profoundness of what his name means, therefore, is, I think, an important little tiny point just to touch on and to just enhance kind of that storyline about who John is. John comes on the scene, and then he leaves pretty quickly, right? Not there for very long. And yet consider who John was. What, what is he uh, called for us in Scripture? He's John the Baptist, and he is what in relationship to Jesus? The forerunner. Now, it was prophesied, right, for, through Isaiah, correct? In particular is the one verse I was thinking of. Now, think about the fact that he was prophesied hundreds of years before his birth. His coming was no accident. It was a planned design of God, and it had had everything to do with specifically the coming of Messiah, the Savior. So this was a plan from, again, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan through his son, right? And the plan was Jesus. We talk, we talk about this, pre, the, this subject of predestination is always a kind of a touchy one, but God's predestination is the plan. The plan was Jesus, and that's what was predestined. So Jesus is predestined from before the foundation of the world, and in that plan is John. So John is then prophesied through Isaiah hundreds of years before he's, he's born, and when he comes, the angel appears and says to Zacharias, what is he to call his son? John, right? So let's look at chapter 1. It's about the forerunner. And his name was John. He was put on here, was prophesied. And this was by Isaiah. We're going to see this in 157 and also in 76 to 79 in chapter 1. So he was prophesied. He was named by uh, the angel. Or the name was given to them by the angel, right? By the angel, and it was to be John. And what does John mean? Number 2491. Does anybody know before I just throw this up? I know it is a review and, and it may not be fresh on your minds, but um, it's insightful. It says the, the name of John means Jehovah is a gracious giver. Isn't that a good, a good name? Can you imagine being, hello, 
God is a gracious giver. <laughs> well, yeah, just call me that. <laughs> I'll go with that. H-O-V-A. Jehovah is a gracious giver. That's what his name means. Okay? All right. And when you did some of your work on him, you, you saw that he was a Nazarene, right? Do you remember what that is? Can somebody tell me what you know about the Nazarene? Okay. All right. They were to be, there was literally a setting apart of them. Now, in John's case, he's a unique Nazarene. As a matter of fact, I see if, did I leave that on here? Nazarite, sorry, Nazarite, you're right. Um, the, the, there was also Samson and there was one other one, is it Elijah or someone else? That, but those are the only three in all of scripture who were Nazar, Nazarites from birth. That's pretty unique. So John is carrying a pretty unique identity about himself. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> I cut and paste this, a Nazar, N-A-Z-A-R. That's what I have on my pen. <laughs> oh, well, I'll have to fix that. <laughs> so although he's not a sinless man, he is set apart as God's holy article or holy um, um, vessel, I guess, or, or, or tool, so to speak, in, in the hand of God, right? Uh, it says that he, his life was consecrated to that goal by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when was that spirit given to him? While he was yet in the womb. That's also, again, unique. So John becomes unique in, in several qualities about who he is. But what it does is it emphasizes the role that he held as the forerunner to the Christ, right? Uh, Malachi 4, 6 prophesied that the forerunner's mission was that he would be like someone else. Do you remember who it was? Elijah. Be like, he'd be like Elijah. And in that, what was his role to do? What was he, uh, what was the mission he was given? Do you remember? As the forerunner, what was he supposed to be doing? Okay, preparing the way of the Lord and doing what concerning the people? And what was the problem with people? Yes, he wants to turn them in, turn them, turning the people's heart to the Lord. Now, the reason that um, I bring that up is because I went back to look at this. I'm going, if he was like Elijah, and yet at one point he's asked, are you Elijah, right? And he says, no, right? And yet I went back and I found in 1 Kings 18.37 is a, a text in there where Elijah is said to be the one who was turning of the people's heart to the Lord. That was what Elijah did also. He spoke a message of repentance from sin. All right, so that's who the forerunner was. John grew, he became strong in spirit at the end of chapter one, and then it, and it also tells us that he lived in the wilderness until the days of his public presentation, right? Which I also thought was kind of interesting. As a forerunner to Jesus, what did we see this week about Jesus concerning the wilderness? When did he start his ministry and where did he come from when he entered into it? 
out of the wilderness also. Isn't that interesting? And it's just, it's just a subtle little point in there, but I thought that's interesting. He was the forerunner. He, was, he came from out of the wilderness to enter into his public ministry. And what did Jesus do? He went into the wilderness and then came from the wilderness into his public ministry. So he did often do that, didn't he? He did, absolutely. So in a way, the wilderness is not necessarily always a place of testing, but it's also a place of what? Prayer, strengthening, right? It's a renewal, a place to go to, re to renew. Okay, so and then in chapter, so we see, let's get this put here. Uh, no, but um, there are a couple of places that are kind of um, suggested when you, when you look at it that uh, the place where they found the Qumran um, scrolls, thank you, uh, that that would be the area. Now, that would be, is it down by the Dead Sea? Is that correct? It's down by the Dead Sea. So l in the lower parts of Israel. Well, it would not, not be the hills. There was, there's a desert area there. All the way down to the bottom, yeah. And it's a flat desert area, yes. Yes. Between the Dead Sea and Bethany and That's the right. Olives. That's right. There is a section down there. As a matter of fact, what's interesting is, for those of you who've done Revelation, what else happens down in that area? Do you remember? There you go. He goes, all, he goes down there to rescue Judah, right, first, and then he brings them up through that same desert area up along the the Dead Sea, and back up to when they arrived to Jerusalem. So again, we see him coming out of that wilderness and bringing them out of that wilderness. Kind of makes you think again, like being brought up out of Egypt sort of concept, right? Out of the, yes. Well, kind of. It's in logical order is what it really means. Not necessarily chronological, no. But he says it's in an orderly, it's, it's a, an orderly account that makes, lo makes logical sense. Because we do know that there are some things that are out of the chronology. Okay. Right. Or there, and there was another one about John the Baptist in here where John the Baptist says he's put in prison and then it shows Jesus being baptized, Right. But it actually isn't that way. When you do your synoptic observation, you see that who was it that baptized Jesus? John. So John wasn't in prison before Jesus was baptized, right? It just—it's just saying the law. Is, so it's a lot. It's not chronology. It's a good point to bring up, Kathleen, in case it, someone else had not caught that. It doesn't mean chronological. It just means logical order, an orderly consecutive but when you do a word study on that it there's a, a variety of ways that that could be ironed out and what you you know with inductive bible study that's one of the things you always have to do is go back in and say first of all um you don't violate the known doctrine well the known doctrine through doing a synoptic observation as you know jesus jesus was baptized by john 
right? So obviously he couldn't have been in prison and then baptized by by him if John was already in, pr in prison. Therefore, the word consecutive does not mean chronological, right? It just means a logical, systematic kind of unfolding of these events. And he put them, for the most part, they are in pretty good chronological order, but he just tried to systematically lay it out so that so that you get all the facts and all the details. Um, we talked about this last week that some people think that this um, writing to um, Theophilus, thank you, that the writing to Theophilus may have been a record that was used for the legal system, the legal court system, potentially. And that's where he says it's a consecutive thing. It would be almost like a, a brief that's given to a lawyer so that when uh, Paul, for instance, was in legal trouble and he was going before the um, the um, the Roman government, for instance, that he would have this consecutive list of all the details of the recording and the record was given. If you're going to do something legally, who is it that you interview? Ah, uh, the eyewitnesses, which is something he emphasizes, is the eyewitness accounts of it, and so that's another kind of a clue that says that maybe this had something to do with legality, the legality of the system that was in place at the time, and therefore that was why he says in a consecutive order. Yeah. Yeah, and you know it can't be because there you go. So then you got to go back, you fall back and you say, okay, don't violate your known doctrine. The known doctrine is we know John was the one who baptized him, according to the other cross-references. So he wasn't in prison and then baptized by John. John was in prison after he was baptized. Okay? All right? All right, good. So, again, that has to do with language and interpretation. So when they translated from the original language into ours, they used the word consecutive, and in our mind we jumped to chronological, but that isn't necessarily what that means. Orderly. That's it. we go. It's a sequential unfolding of how things happened. It doesn't necessarily mean cons the exact consecutive order of them. It just means it's a, it makes sense. It's an order. Okay, so he was in the, in the wilderness. He was in the, in the desert or wilderness until his public uh, ministry. Okay, and that's in 1 verse 80. Then we see, I'm going to jump over to chapter 3 then. So that was chapter 1. Chapter 3, we see John then comes preaching, right? He came preaching. Um, and he did this to prepare the way. And a lot of this going back has a lot to do with just getting your mind back into you know, where we're at and where we've come from. Now, when Jesus appeared on the scene, John recognized him, right? Do you remember what John says to him from uh, other cross-references about when, he, when he's standing by the, the um, Jordan and he sees Jesus approaching, and what does he say? What does John say to the disciples who are standing near him? 
There you go. So he recognized him immediately, which I think is very insightful that this is a, um, you know, we talk about them being related, and yet they don't seem to have really had a whole lot of contact growing up. They kind of grew in, they were in two different worlds almost, even though, which is often you see that in families too, right? That we, even though we have relatives, they're people you don't necessarily see all the time. But when he saw him, he recognized him. He didn't just recognize him as a family member, but he recognized him as the Christ. And he identifies him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he knew him. He also knew um, when he saw him, what did this also tell John? If, if John seemed to understand his place in this, didn't he? So when he sees Jesus coming, and he's coming for his baptism, having, we talked about last week what baptism is in the, in the Jewish system. What are some of the various reasons people are baptized in the Jewish system? A, pos- a new name. Because if you get a new name, what is the new, why is a new name given? a new position or a new identity, right? It could be a new name as in marriage, but it could also be a new name as in you go from being um, Joseph's son to being the son of God in this case, right? So uh, Jesus' approach is approaching. John recognizes him. He identifies him as the Lamb of God when he sees him. And at that very moment, what does John know about his ministry? It's done. He is at the close of his ministry. Do you think that what, what follows this, what, what happens to John after Jesus is baptized? What did we say he, happens to him? <laughs> Almost immediately, he is put into prison and then is eventually killed. Could you imagine understanding this? He says, I must decrease and he must increase. So here's John who understood his ministry and his calling. He understood who Jesus was and he saw him and identified him when he approached. And when he approached in that very moment, he understood his work was done. Isn't that that an interesting little point? So John came preaching. John recognized Jesus. as the Lamb of God, and, it's, and he, he understood, he understood his work was done, or his work was coming to a close, his ministry was at a close. Okay, and I'm going to give you a, a verse. I cross-referenced that over to Matthew 3. It's verses 11 and 12. Where, And also there's another one in John. Let me give you that one too. John um, 1, 15 and 30. And that's the one where he says, he must increase, I must decrease. Okay? Then we see, t- as we're about to enter into this, the next thing that happens in chapter 3 is Jesus is baptized. We see that record. Jesus is baptized. Okay. Now, what do you see? I want us to look real carefully because this leads us into what's coming up. When we got into uh, chapter 4, what is the first thing we see in chapter 4? 
he is go Jesus goes into the wilderness. So let's put this up here. Um, it's going to be verses 1 to 13, and what we're going to see is Jesus going into the wilderness. Jesus, and what happens when he's in the wilderness? He's tempted. So Jesus is tempted. By who? Okay, now, when we see him up going into the wilderness and going through this testing or this temptation by Satan, we have to remember the full context of it. If you isolate it from what happened previously, you're going to miss a real, I think, a real blessing. Remember, in this particular book, we haven't fully developed it yet, but we're, besides the fact that what we know is it's a consecutive written orderly account, right? That it's written so that we know the, may know the exact truth, right? But what, another thing that we're still trying to parse out, and we're not totally there because we need to move a little further in and observe a little bit more, but we're also trying to see how is this record presenting Jesus that's different from the other Gospels. Since each Gospel has a, a goal and a purpose, and it we, we already know that ahead of time because it's been told us forever that each of the Gospels shows or dis, uh, displays Jesus in a different way. So what we're trying to do is let the text reveal to us how is Jesus being revealed to us. We know what other people tell us, Luke tells us, but we want to see it for ourselves, right? We want to see how do they know that this book teaches X, Y, or Z concerning Jesus. So we have to pay close attention ourselves and try to discern what we see this author emphasizing about Jesus so that we can come to a, a really good grip on what is it that is being taught to us about who Jesus is in this book, right? Are you following me? Okay, so when you move into chapter 4, what you have to do is before you start, you know, putting aside chapter 1 through 3 and just moving into 4 and isolating it, you want to try to draw what was laid down before that might enhance or help you understand better why chapter 4 opens the way it does and lays out this event. What follows chapter 1 through 13? What event follows after that once he's done with his temptation? What happens to him next? He starts his public ministry. So what do you think verses 1 through 13 have to do with what follows it? How, what is that relationship? You have to kind of ask yourself some questions. Well, why was there this? And why was this recorded for us? And what point is he making about the temptation? And what, how does it relate to the ministry that he's about to enter into? Yes. Okay, Pro proving him. Now, does that hold water when you look at the subject matter of uh, temptations and trials on the whole in Scripture? When we go and look at other places in Scripture and we look at what is the purpose for um, tempting or temptations or struggles, right? Why does God let you and I go through them? To refine us. There, to strengthen our relationship with God. And? Any others? Can you think of any others? I mean, there's a lot of them. Say it again. Okay, it does reveal sin. Obviously, in Jesus' life, would you say that's true? 
No. Okay, so we can kind of scratch that one, but it is a good point to bring up for our personal application because when we look at what go is going on with Jesus' life here, what we're trying to do is say, well, if this happened to Jesus, um, and this has been recorded in this record, why is it recorded? Well, there's something I'm supposed to be learning, right? Obviously, I think about Romans uh, 15, 4. I think it's 4, maybe it's 6, 4, where it says that these things that were written were written for our edification, right? That we would learn from what was, has happened in the past so that we can apply it in the future as God's children. So if this has been recorded for us to learn something from it, and that's what we're seeing. What you and I need to do on a regular basis as we are going through the book of Luke is constantly be saying, okay, so what's the point to this record right here? Yes. Yes. Very good. Okay. It not only gives us strength, but what else does it do? Okay, yes. Okay, yes. Very good. Authority, because after all, even if I'm strong, am I strong in myself? Does anything I have to say matter? No, not at all. But if I really want to have victory, whose word must I have? the one who has authority, the one that is authority, the one that is absolute truth, who is God. And so when Jesus himself is tempted, how does he battle against Satan to win? He uses the word of God. That's his, his, that's his absolute authority and power and, yes, his strength in that moment. Because in and of ourselves as human beings in flesh, can we, can we win? No. Interesting then, Jesus demonstrates this to us, doesn't he? That Jesus in flesh, in and of himself, has no, no possibility to win except that by what? The word of God. So when Kay took us to the verses that says that it's by every word of God, every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, that's by which that which we stand on. That's what gives us the strength. I think about Hebrews. When we did Hebrews, it was the same thing that says that, uh, we talked about Jesus. It says, if you hold fast to that which you have been told, then you will have victory. But if you aren't holding fast to the truth, which is God's word, not my word, not my thoughts, not my experiences. I just had a great conversation with a friend on the a phone yesterday, this friend of mine called, and she was telling me about a conversation they had in their Sunday school class, and it just drove her nuts, and she was, she was like, you got to explain this to me, and so we were talking about it, and I said, this is where it, it, again, we're back to, by whose authority do you stand on? Is it by your emotions and your experiences? Well, uh, honestly, we do have emotions, and we do have experiences, and they have some value, right? But if you want to win the battle, where do you stand? And Jesus demonstrated that to us, right? Okay, now I want to back us up a little bit before we go any further into, you know, the things that, you know, systematically occurred in, the, in those first 13 verses. But what prepared Jesus 
as a man in the flesh of man, when he went into that wilderness, what prepared him for that wilderness experience to have the victory? Because he went even beyond that. I mean, when he went into the wilderness, we saw that he went without food for 40 days and 40 nights. I think it only says 40 days in this passage, but for 40 days. And um, so he, he went also to an extent of um, extreme uh, depletion of his own physical strength. Did you notice that? Okay, so now back up two or three steps. Go back to the end of chapter uh, 3 where he was be about to be baptized. What do you see Jesus doing? Let's make a list. What did Jesus do to prepare? Preparation for t uh, temptation. Oh, okay. He, he was. So go back to chapter 3. I think it's verse 21. It might have been even before that. Let me open my Bible too here. Hold on a second. Let me get mine open. That's right. Okay, so all the way back from, if you wanted to, to go that far back, now you're talking about all the way into his childhood, right? And I think that record is showing back when he was at the age of 12. It talked about this gradual growth in strength and wisdom. So there is, there is a, a, you know, a much longer preparation that's going on. But the immediate preparation that shows to us in the context of the flow of thought, where this, this author is trying to give us this concise, orderly, insight about truth and about um, the unfolding of these events. Well, if you've got the event where he is going to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness, what happened just prior to that in the record? The record shows that he is, uh, is going to be baptized, right? Before he's baptized, what is he seen doing? He's praying. So the first thing you, say, you see is Jesus is praying, would you say that's a significant and important thing? I want somebody to look at um, James 5.1. I've got a few verses. I hope they're good ones because <laughs> I can't remember what they say. Somebody, who wants James 5.1? Okay, thank you, um, uh, Janice. Ephesians 6.18, who's got that? Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, and then 1 Peter 5.8. Thank you, Susan. Okay, so let's read those three things. Concerning prayer, what Scripture teaches us about prayer? 5-1. Yeah, uh, I hope this are right. That's not right. See, I was worried about that because I was really tired when I was doing this. Okay. Keep, keep, re, just scan your eyes down it and you'll see. It could be like 12 or 10 or something. I'm, huh? What about one oh, maybe. No, I don't think so. Okay, skip it. Go on to Ephesians 6.18. I'm so sorry. I knew that might happen because it was really late when I was doing this. Ephesians 6.18. Oh, I like this one. This is good. Okay, so here, he's, here we see in Scripture, it tells us that it's through prayer that you're able to be on the alert. Do you think Jesus needed to be on the alert? 
Yeah, and and so it encourages us in uh, in other scriptures that it's through prayer that you're really on the alert. Isn't that interesting? So when he arrives in just a, a, a breath away here in the very opening of the next chapter and he encounters this temptation, he has already prepared himself to be on the alert through prayer. Okay, and uh, 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, I'm going to scra- scra- scratch out that James one so that we have Okay, Jesus is praying. Okay. Okay, there you go. <laughs> There you go. That's it. What? 516. Okay, that's where I, I messed up. I need to rewrite that in there. Can I borrow your pen? Sure. 516. So I must have backspaced. And I, my computer is acting up a little bit. It jumps on me, and when I, when I try to make the cursor go where it's supposed to go, it doesn't. Yeah. It's my bad juju, huh? And it's Satan, my my adversary, <laughs> in my computer. <laughs> okay, all right. So again, you see then that Jesus himself, he is praying. This is preparing him to be alert, on the alert for his adversaries. And in particular, who is our ultimately our adversary? Ephesians talks about this. You, you, you don't fight against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers and, and of darkness and, and of the air. Okay, so he's praying. That's in 3, I'll put that up here, 321. Uh, okay, that's the first thing we see him doing. The second thing that helps to prepare him to go into this is the next thing that he experiences. What happens when he is baptized and comes up out of the water? We see the Holy Spirit descending upon him. So he has this abiding Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Is abiding upon him. Okay, and that's in 3.22. Now, I'm kind of um, mixing um, a little bit on this particular list because this is not an, an actual word-for-word list right out of uh, Luke, but I'm mixing it just a little bit with some of the other um, synoptic gospels where you go and look at the others where it talks about it descended on him and it remained, it says in one of the other Gospels. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is, comes upon him and it abides on him or it remains on him is what the other texts say. So in knowing that, what do you learn about the, the Spirit there? Do you see this as an essential part of preparing him to go into this wilderness experience? How is this an ex- a, a, a benefit to him? How, and what is it showing us? It shows us where our power is. It shows us where our real protection is, right? So as children of God, if, if the point to Jesus' experiences that are being recorded is for our learning, 
then what we are learning from Jesus is how as humans to endure and to persevere and to to be successful when we go through temptations and trials, right? All right, so Jesus is showing us through what, what, or God is showing us through what is recorded here about his son, that there is an abiding of the spirit upon his son who, who is at that moment in history in flesh. So as the man of flesh, he has the abiding Holy Spirit, which is what is his strength, right? It's that which protects him and gives him um, not only pr protection, but in, in a few more minutes, we'll get into chapter four. I'm going to show you something else about that spirit, what it does for us. Okay, and then there's another part of that. So the, the spirit falls upon him, and he says about Jesus what? This is my beloved son. And what else does he say? In him... I am well pleased. Tell me what you learned about those two points that show us something about preparation for going into tempting. Okay. Not only do you have to be in right relationship, but in this point, in this moment, who's, who's informing him that this is a truth? God the Father is. So while Jesus is in flesh, God is, actually the heavens opened up and he hears a voice from heaven. I mean, this is a supernatural, profound thing on, on one hand, but on the second hand, it's actually showing us what God could have done in the privacy of the inner mind but he's making it a, a vocal testament, right? In part, we know that that has to do with the baptism itself. What was the point to the baptism? He was taking on a new identity. What had he been known uh, to be before this claim? This is my beloved son, the son of Joseph. So now in, public, in this public uh, baptism, he's taking on this new identity of being the son of God, no longer the son of Joseph, because this becomes a problem when we move into chapter uh, 4 and 5, again, where the people, and I think it was in 5, where they were having tr a, a real difficulty in accepting him as being the one who has fulfilled the scriptures of Isaiah, right? It, it, this day, in this day, you, what, you, what I am saying to you is being fulfilled in your hearing, and they're like, oh, wait a minute, aren't you Joseph's son? Right? So here we see the baptism. The point to it was to make a declaration, this is my son. And it was made verbally out loud. Now, how does that prepare Jesus, the man in flesh, for what he's about to face? Okay, it's a confirmation to him whose father is really his father. Now, have you ever been in the schoolyard and seen kids fight? Well, my daddy's bigger than your daddy. My daddy can beat up your dad. Well, listen, Jesus' daddy is who? God. Now think about that for in relationship to you and I, or in, in where we are with the relationship with God. Who is our real father? We have earthly fathers, yes. Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 12, you have earthly fathers who discipline you, but you also have a heavenly father. And who do you think is the most important father in your life? The heavenly father. Jesus, while he was in this world, in his flesh, 
He had a voice come from heaven in that moment of his baptism and make a proclamation to him, you are my son. And not only are you my son, but you're my son in whom what? In whom I am well pleased. How does that equip? How would that equip you? Don't we long for God to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, or my good and faithful child? Um, there's a, a passage I thought about in Romans. I want someone to look up this about the idea that we are the beloved son. Romans 8, 37 to 39. Who can read that for me? Thank you, Lisa. And the idea that we are blessed of the Father, let's look at John 15, 12 to 17. Who, ha- who can look that one up for me? Somebody? Uh, John 15, 12 to 17. Okay, thank you. All right, well, let's start with Romans 8 where we're talking about the Father's beloved Son to assure us, he's going to assure us that we are his child and he loves you, that you can trust that, that that is powerful in your equipping to go into a wilderness experience of testing. Okay, what does it say there? Wow. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, yeah, you're going to go through persecutions and trials and temptations and, and the, the, the stresses, really, just the everyday stresses of life. But you can know this, that you are more than conquerors. Do you ever feel like just giving up sometimes? Do you ever just get to a place where you're like, okay, God, just take me. I was thinking of Calgon, take me away, but I'm like, Jesus, just take me away, right? I just want to just be done with the struggles that this life keeps throwing at me because sometimes I feel so hurt and I feel so crushed. I feel so perplexed. I feel so angered. And all I want to do is escape. But think about this moment. We also think that you're down here with, with me now in the lull of the valley. But think about where Jesus was in the moment of his baptism. He's up on the, on the mountaintop. The voice from heaven has just said, you are my son. In you, I am well pleased. You have to, you almost go from the depths of despair to, yes, I am God's child. And he has claimed me for his own. And if he's claimed me for his own, what does that do for me as a child of God walking in this life? If that's the thing I hang on to, not the disparaging place of the depths of despair and wishing it were just over, and the poor pity me stories that I can give myself and get myself down and down and down, and I can do it. I mean, I do it regularly. It's, it's a daily battle for me in my mind to say, you are not defeated. You are not crushed. You are not perplexed. You are my child. And in you, I am well pleased. Why is God well pleased with me? Why was God well pleased with his son? Yeah. Because Jesus said all through the gospel of John, I only do what the father tells me to do. I only speak the words of the Father, right? Everything that what Jesus was about was about doing his Father's will. And so you and I, as children of God, if we are walking with him, seeking to please him, no, we don't do it perfectly. But that's not the point. 
The point is not that we reach perfection. It's that we have a heart's desire to please him. That's what he looks at. He looks at the heart's desire, and he fills in all the gaps for us. So Jesus is there. So we see in um, Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. I I love you. You are my son. Now what does it say in uh, Romans 15, 12 to 17? I mean, John, sorry. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that the one, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you sons for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit shall remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Wow. Isn't that a word right there? Now, there's Jesus on his mountaintop at his baptism, and his father's saying, you've done that. You have proclaimed my name. You have loved one another. You have loved those whom I have given to you well. And and so God is preparing him for the ability to have that kind of love of endurance and of perseverance. And, And he's done it through the beginning place, prayer, And then second, by what God tells us about who we are. So you and I, as children of God, if we are looking at this example of Jesus uh, 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 as he's about to go into this, this really difficult time of temptation, we have to understand that in context of this flow of thought, there was a preparation for him going in as, um, Uh, Glenn said earlier that he actually started as a youth. For you and I, it starts in the youthfulness of our spiritual walk with God. We start little by little with baby steps, growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And as the time passes, we we go through this progression of growing. And then at, at this place here, God is affirming to him, and this is what you have to grow in. You have to understand what God says about you in Jesus Christ. Now, you outside of Jesus Christ, if you are still in Adam, yeah, there's not a whole lot to to claim on, right? There's not much to stand on. There is absolutely nothing that is going to make you pleasing to God if you're standing in that position in Adam. But when you move to your relationship in Christ and you are now a child of God and he says, now you are my child, I love you and with you I am well pleased. And that starts from the very moment of of your salvation. And it all is founded on a, on, a, um, on a catalyst of faith, believing God, believing God is, believing God is a rewarder of those that love him, believing that God, that God fulfills every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, knowing that God has made promises about our salvation, understanding that also he is the one that's going to give you the victory. 
And this is where Jesus was at this moment prior to his going into the temptation. Doesn't that make you feel a lot better about that whole experience of wilderness? If you and I start in the beginning of chapter 4 without laying the premise that precedes it, we can feel almost downtrodden on his behalf. We can almost feel like, oh, gosh, this is, I mean, this is to just be horrific. But you know what? He started all powered up. He started in a place of, in a position of uh, strength, not weakness. He started in a place of strength, not weakness. This is a life principle for you and I to understand about our journey in our walk with God. If you and I don't start by first being powered up, and that requires that when we're not in temptations, when we're not in trials, when we're not in the, in the thick of life's difficulties, that we are preparing ourselves on a daily basis, growing in stature and wisdom with God and man. And if you are doing that, if you're exercising that discipline on a regular basis, God is going to give you that strength so that when the temptation comes, you're prepared. Yes. Well, it, it, almost. I mean, what it shows you is that it takes you to the end of that. Then he gets the, the brunt of the temptation, and then he comes through it. But it says that after he became hungry, then he was tempted with the bread. After the 40 days, and he's good, and, and now hunger comes upon him, then Satan comes up with the temptation about the bread. Yes, go to verse 2. Read verse 2. Yeah, so what's interesting to me is that Satan waited until he was, he, he was putting him in the wilderness experience. Have you ever experienced that? You just don't feel like you're hearing from God? You may not have a whole lot of stuff coming on you, but for some reason, you've just hit a lull in not seeking God on, out for yourself, not really being in that fellowship time with him. So what we're seeing is a demonstration of this. In the case of Jesus, not that he was out of fellowship with the Father, but that he, part of his temptation was removing him from those things which gave him that mountaintop experience put him into a place where he could become physically depleted. I love it because this makes sense, so much more sense to me where it says about Jesus that he is our great high priest and he understands the affirmities that we go through because he himself suffered in that same way. Well, how did he suffer? He's God. He can do anything. Yes, but he was put in a position where he was exhausted and consider what happens after. He goes straight into ministry, and what is the first thing he starts to encounter? Whack, 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 right? The world starts beating up on him, and he spends three and a half years of being beat up on. It kind of makes me think about our journey as Christians. From the moment you come into faith, you can expect the adversaries coming against you. And if, if you can, you might get reprievals from it, for, for short periods of time, but it doesn't last long and back easy is again. That's where it says at the close of, of uh, John 4, that very, those first 13 verses, it says that the Satan left him until an advantageous time. He comes back. <laughs> he leaves for a momentary period. Jesus ramps up. He gets into his ministry, and what do you think is going to show up again? Satan. He's going to show up again. He's going to wait for an opportunity, and he's going to show up again. But it is, it is absolutely essential that you understand 
where you're going to get your strength on a daily basis for you and I to walk in our faith walk with God. Because that's what this life is all about. And that is what this gospel is showing us, is Jesus the man. Jesus in flesh, he experienced what we are experiencing. Not because he didn't understand it without experiencing it, but he did it for our benefit that we would understand that he understands. He did it to show us that we can count on him because he understands exactly what we're feeling and exactly what we're going through. And as a matter of fact, he went through it on a far greater degree. He, he, you know, whatever we experience down here on this little level here, he experienced on a much greater degree of temperature and pressure because Satan came against him right from the beginning. And so in this particular account, we see Jesus' preparation. He is in prayer. The Holy Spirit is abiding upon him. He is, uh, he is told by God that you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. This is equipping him so that he is prepared for that moment. That's what you and I need to do on a regular basis. Stoke up your mind in these regards, knowing that you are God's child. He loves you. He, his abiding spirit is upon you because you're in covenant with him. Remember, the spirit is given until the day of redemption. You have the abiding eternal spirit with you if you are a child of God. Right? And now let's move into chapter 4 and let's see what else he does for preparation. We see the very first thing is in Luke 4.1, what happens? Yeah, you know, you, can, well, you could read right past that if you aren't careful. It's like, uh-huh, okay, he's led into, this, into the wilderness. Oh, now, wait a minute. Stop and think about that. Who's, yeah, he's full of the Spirit. The Spirit is abiding upon him according to the previous chapter. And right here, what is... Is he going uh, like in shackles and the spirit is just taking him and he doesn't have a choice in this? He is led. What does that mean he's allowing? He's allowing the spirit to lead him. And what does that mean he is doing? He's following God's will. Isn't that an amazing, if you really parse this out a little bit, what you're really seeing here is, one of the things that prepares you to be able to endure is that you allow the Holy Spirit to lead. If you are quenching the Spirit of God, if you are resisting the, the will of God, if you are in the midst of a battle, and many of us are on a pretty regular basis, if you are trying to run from it and run out of it, did, what did Jesus do and how long did he stay there? In this particular thing, and remember, this, what is the number 40 all about, by the way? What is 40 used for in Scripture? Does anybody know? That's right. So the children of God themselves were put in, but theirs was 40 years, but the number 40 comes up, right? So 40 is a number of completeness. It just shows a completed measure of time. So with Jesus, he went into his experience for 40 days and 40 nights, and basically he stays there and he goes there by the leading of the Holy Spirit, which means he follows the Spirit. He allows the Spirit to take him, and when he's there, he stays. Now, could Jesus have just said, forget this, I'm out of here, babe? I mean, he has the power to do that. He could have left the cross, 
Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's in prayer and he's sweating um, droplets of blood, literally, in his sweat. He is, pr he is under so much pressure and so much in intense um, physical distress about what he's about to endure and what he's going to spiritually endure, the separation of him from the Father. And yet what does he do? Does he run from it? Your will, not my will. Are you guys catching all this that we're looking at here this morning? I mean, this is powerful stuff. I know I'm really taking up a lot of our time, but I really feel like this is one of those messages that if we aren't careful to slow down and really grab hold of it, this is an equipping message, number one. And number two, this is also equipping for us in the study of Luke on the whole. What are we being taught in this account that's being laid out for us. What is it that it's telling us about what this author wants us to know about who Jesus is? What is it teaching us? That's right. So what we're really seeing here is he's demonstrating to us himself as man, as flesh. And in doing that, there you go, shows us our potential, shows us how are you and I going to do, okay, it's so easy, oh yeah, Jesus could do that because Jesus is God, right? But what did he submit to? I think it's in Philippians chapter 2. Someone go to Philippians 2. Um, does anybody know where that is, where it says that he did not... Um, Consider it to be equality with God, but do you remember that verse? Somebody look that one up real quick because I want to read that one just came to my mind and I want to because again, we have to try to grab hold of the author's purpose for us in this book. We want to see what is it about Jesus and this record that's been given to us that he wants us to see about his son. Okay, thank you. There you go. Yes. There you go. So he took on, on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men, meaning he took on our flesh so that he could demonstrate to us how to live in flesh. Because you and I can always say over and over to ourselves, well, God could do it because he was God, but I can't because I'm a man. Well, he's showing us how you can. How you can be victorious, in this case, in temptation. There's going to be lots more to come yet. Uh -huh. That's right. It is, this is just powerful stuff. If you, just by backing up a few verses and adding in what the preparation was before he goes into this wilderness experience, what equipped him to be able to endure in what he endured as a man in flesh? And so we see then that Jesus is tempted we, and that he is, um, he follows the leading of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that, and that was in um, 4.1, right? Okay, 
understand the reasons and purpose for trials and temptations. You need to understand this. Um, what time is it? Oh, we're going to be short. Um, which one's dry? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I'm going to give you one of the three. Just let's do that one. If you're going to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, one of the ways that you're going to be able to do that, and what I see Jesus having done is he understands the purpose in what's going on. He seems to know already, uh, duh, right, because he is God. He didn't leave his deity behind, but he submitted to the flesh, and what he understands about the flesh is that in the flesh, there is a designed purpose that God is taking him through this for as the Son of Man. What is the purpose in it in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? Who has that? Wow, there's a great, that's a great verse. And I have a couple of others here we'll just skip for right now for the sake of time. But what we can understand is that, that God understands it, God has allowed it, God has prepared you for it, and God is taking you through it. It is all in God's plan. And there is a plan in this for us as his children. You need to trust him in this. Deuteronomy 31.6, someone look that one up. Trust God when you are in these in these situations and follow the spirit don't resist it what does he say in 31 6 deuteronomy wow so he is with you he will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you remember what, he, what we said back here, the preparation for, tempta for going into this temptation? You are my, my beloved son, and the Holy Spirit was abiding upon him. The Spirit never leaves you, and he does not forsake you, and God will not leave you nor forsake you. So that is something that Jesus knew, and it's what helped him when he went through his own temptation here. So he follows the leading of the Holy Spirit, he understands the reason for the temptations, and he trusts God in it. That's why he's able to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Do you trust God? Whatever your t trial is right now in your life, are you trusting him? Are you relying on the fact that you know he loves you and he will not forsake you, and at some point he will bring you to a place where you have a way of escape? It's not going to go on forever. It feels like it. Think of Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights out in that wilderness. He probably felt like it was never going to end. But it did come to its end, did it not? Every temptation will come to its end. Every, every trial will come to its end at some point. And in that, what you do is have to trust God in it. You trust who he is. Okay, then um, the next thing is... Um, what we said earlier, how did Jesus respond when he was tempted? What was Jesus' response? He, he, spe he replies, it's with the word of God. And so we see this in verse 4, 8, and 12. Thus saith the Lord. And that's his standard reply in this. Thus saith the Lord. Um, 
We looked on, on uh, day two on page 33 in your homework. We looked at those two verses. One was in Deuteronomy 8. This is another Deuteronomy passage. Let's talk about those two passages, and you tell me what you saw in that. How does this all apply to what we've just been looking at? Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 3, and then Isaiah 55, 11 were two passages Kay had you look at. We kind of briefly touched on it already, but let's look at this one again. Because I want to see if you, what you saw when you did your homework. What, were, what was your reflection and your understanding of how this applies to what's going on with this temptation? Somebody read it, one through three. This is pretty interesting, isn't it? It's almost like a reversal of roles here. God uses Israel and a demonstration of something that he did with him that Jesus reflects back on and quotes for his strength. Israel did this. Israel went through. Now, we know many of them did not succeed in that, right? Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 tells us that many of them fell in the wilderness. And why did they, why did they fall in the wilderness? Because of unbelief and disobedience is unbelief. And he goes on to explain that, and he makes that synonymous back and forth in that passage. Because of their unbelief and because of their disobedience, they, they fail. But Jesus quotes this passage, this whole situation that happened with Israel. Israel itself was tested for 40, to 40 years in the wilderness. They were given a lot of ample time to try to get it right, right? Jesus did it in 40 days. Isn't that amazing? What does that tell you about you and I? Does it take 40 years for you and I to get it right? But it shouldn't, right? What Jesus demonstrates to us in this example is it doesn't take 40 years. If you will simply follow the plan, follow the example that he has left for you and I, remembering who you belong to, remembering that you have that abiding spirit where your power is, remembering who your father is, understanding that there's a period of time for this, but it's going to come to an end. Have confidence in that and rely on God's word as your strength. All right, then the other one was Isaiah 55, 11. What does it say? What does that tell you about God's word? You better know it because it's, if it's what proceeds out of God's mouth and it's the one that accomplishes God's purpose. So it tells you that God's word is powerful, right? 
that, that your real strength is not in yourself, it's in what God has to say about things. This is why it's so easy for the world to trip us up. When we forget to remember what God says about things, about who we are, about who Jesus is, about how it's all going to turn out in the end, when we stop remembering that and start going and falling into the ways of the world and what the world says about who we are or about where we're headed or about what's going to happen to us in this world, or what's going to even happen to the world itself. Uh, you know, I've, I've been told on authority of a certain person, in 12 years we're out of here, right? And so if you, if you believe that and not believing what God says, no, you know, we can kind of laugh at that, but, but there's a seriousness to it. How frightful is that to somebody who doesn't know the word of God? How scary is that false word of testimony out of the mouth of the ignorant person who said that, who doesn't know God's word, doesn't believe God's word, doesn't understand that God has written for us in his pages exactly how it's going to unfold, right? So it's very easy for us to allow somebody to scare people into doing what they want because they make a word. Who, who does that? Well, what did, what did you learn about Satan when you did your homework? There was a, let's see if I can find it. There it is. What did you learn about Satan? Go, let's go into, into that. Let's look at, you guys looked at 1 John 5 and John 8 and Revelation 12. Um, I think that's also in the same day, day two, I think, also, right? Where you t learned about the devil. She said, look at what you, let's see if I, I'll have to, you would ask me to. Page 34, thank you, it is day two, okay, yes, there it is. Page 34, of number four, she said, look at a few cross-references, and she gives you some, and then she says, um, under, look at these and s tell me what you learn about the devil. What is it that we learn about the devil? Say, yes, okay, he is that the dragon of old, by the way, and just by that statement of, alone, that's right out of the Genesis account, right? Well, it's a Revelation reference, but he's taking you back to Genesis 3, right? What happened with the devil of old? What did he do in that garden? He deceived man into believing that what God said was not true, but that he twisted it, and that's all they have to do is twist it. And our world does this to us all the time. They take what, what basic principles about life and they tweak it just a little bit so that on the surface it's like you, can't, you, you feel like you can't argue against it because you'll look like you're the bad guy. But systemically down below the surface, there is a, they have totally perverted what God's truth is concerning a subject matter, right? Is that not what we are up against on a daily basis with what's going on politically in our nation today? It's a constant harangue. Um, and a beating over the head so that you will comply with their mistruth. That is Satan. That is straight from the heart and the mouth of what Satan did. The, the serpent of old, okay? And he did it to Satan. He did it to um, Adam and Eve in the garden. And what did they end up doing? They sinned against God because they forgot what God said is true, like here, he says, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And when you forget those truths and all the other truths that God says, and you start believing the lies that, this, that Satan has, the twisting of God's word, 
did God really say? No, you won't. You're going you're gonna to have that knowledge and wisdom. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, talk to the hand, talk to the hand, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay, and so in John eight forty four, what do we learn about him? Who is he? He is the liar and the father of lies. So you just better know that right up front. And if you're dealing with a person of the world who does not know God, does not have the abiding spirit, what spirit do they have? The spirit of their father, who is a liar and the father of lies. And so you are... There you go. You are right on, girl. Just say that in love. <laughs> right? In Revelation 12, he, he's called that deceiver. Who does he deceive? The world. Now, you should not be deceived. Now, this is a warning to you. You and I should not be deceived by his lies. We should know the truth, right? And the truth shall set you free. If you know the truth and hold fast to the truth and you're quoting the truth as Jesus did, respond to the world and respond to Satan with the written word of God. Don't count on your own words. Don't go on your emotions. Don't go on your own personal experiences. You simply speak God's word to them. This is what God says about the world and where we're going. This is what God says about really loving people. This is what true love looks like. It isn't this, it's this, right? You need to speak truth and you need to, and you need to be equipped. This is what allowed Jesus to get through his temptation in the wilderness. Whew, there is so much more we could go on. We're going to have to pass on it, though, and keep moving because we've got so much more to cover. Was that not good? If that's all we get out of our lesson today, we have been strengthened to walk in it. That's true. From the beginning all the way to the end, as in Scripture. Yes, and he came in flesh so that we could understand you can do this. How many of you feel like you can't do this because you're just flesh? And how many times has Satan let you be deceived about that? That, well, I know Jesus could do it because he was God, but I'm just flesh. Well, guess what? Jesus took on flesh so that he could demonstrate to you that it can be done. I think about... Um, Romans chapter 5, where it talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam was, was a man of flesh, and he tried to walk in his own flesh and use his own reasoning. But what did the second Adam do, according to what we're looking at here? He, he, he understood that God was his father. He relied on the spirit and followed the leading of the spirit, he didn't run from the hard things. He faced them head on, and he used the word of God to, to combat it. The second Adam is the one who sets us free. And he is showing us it's not too hard. Yes, you can do it. You think you are weak? You are not. You're a child of God. Think of who you belong to, who your daddy is, and who's going to come to your defense. We are overwhelmingly conquerors through Christ Jesus, right? 
Jesus was overwhelmingly a conqueror because he relied upon the spirit that was abiding on him. As a man of flesh, he had to abide in it just as you and I do. And he did it to demonstrate to us it can be done. I love that. I had never really looked at this temptation thing from this perspective because I've never done it inductively where I've taken the whole context, backed up, looked at the preparation time, laid it on top of now he's gone into the wilderness, this is where he's at, and this is what he's doing. Then you, ha- then you take that and you layer on top of that the, all these cross-references that support the things that you're seeing right there in the text, which is what I did. I just went through and pulled out several verses for for each of these little subject matters about him praying about the abiding of the spirit that we are loved by God and that God think that we are pleasing to God that he is pleased with us what makes us pleasing to him it's our walking in obedience it's our love for one another it's a demonstration of the glory of God in and through us and those are the things that make us well uh, pleasing to the father it's Jesus that makes us pleasing Right? It's Jesus. I know. I do not get it either. It's almost like, uh, really? You're the created being, devil, Satan. And by the way, he was the created being who was given a place of splendor in the hierarchy of the heavens at that time. But he wasn't satisfied with it. Again, I, I got to keep going back to the point about the angels and man. There is one quality that we are both given. It's called free will. And the free will of some of those angels chose badly. Indiana Jones says, choose wisely, right? <laughs> choose wisely. All right, let's move on to the next part. We saw the temptation. Now, the next one is verses... Um, Uh, It's going to be 14 to 30. I hope we get through more than just this little bit, but let's try it. We see Jesus returns to Galilee, and how does he return in verse 14? In the power of the Spirit. I love that. Now, when he returns, he goes where? Where does he return to? And what does he do when he gets there? He begins teaching in the synagogue. So, and when he's in the synagogue, what is, it, what is his big proclamation? What does he announce about himself? That he's fulfilled, or that scripture has been fulfilled in their hearing. So I don't, how did you guys title your p- paragraph there? Okay. And he announces himself. That's right, at Nazareth. Now, why is it important that it's, about, it's at Nazareth? What is that significance? Huh? First of all, it does fulfill a scripture, exactly. And what is Nazareth to Jesus? That's his hometown. That's where he grew up as a child, as a boy, a child. And which, by the way, that tells me that all those people who heard him speak from the, the word of Isaiah, these are people that know him. They should be the ones who also have heard enough stories about him all these years, about his immaculate conception, about what uh, uh, Mary and Joseph both claimed happened to this girl. Now, they didn't believe it, obviously, 
right? Because their objection when Jesus stands up and he announces the scriptures fulfilled in their hearing, there's a contrast that's presented to us in uh, verse 22, right? So let's talk about that. Let's see. He announces uh, the scripture fulfilled. She took us in there to look at to see what part was it that he quoted from and where did he stop? What did you note about that? Yeah, he stopped before the vengeance part. And the vengeance part is speaking about what time in history? The end times. But the rest of it that preceded that was all about what? About the days of Christ, the things that he would do. Now, what kind of things is he he saying that is going to happen or that he is going to do? What was quoted from Isaiah? This is in verse 17 and 18. Yeah, he's, there you go. Pre, he's going to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal, to proclaim release to captives, right? To rec- a recover of sight to the blind. Now, are we, does that sound familiar after you've done your homework on chapter 4 and 5? Does Jesus do those things? Oh, yeah, and he's saying, look, today in your hearing, these things are fulfilled. So he's making a proclamation to them that what Isaiah said, and by the way, if you take it one step further, and she didn't ask us to do that, but when Isaiah is speaking about this day that's coming, when these things are going to happen, who is it that's going to do these things according to Isaiah? That Christ that's coming, the, the promised one. So in essence, even though it doesn't say it in the verse, what Jesus is actually proclaiming is, I am the promised Christ. That's why they were upset with him, right? Because he's saying, wait a minute, I am the Christ. If you are the Christ, I have a problem with this, right? And yet they struggled with it. What was the contrast that went on there? It said that he, how did he speak? There you go. He spoke spoke great, gracious words, but what was going on in their mind? Yeah, Yeah, so they're thinking, is this not Joseph's son? Right? So tell me how you kind of explain that to yourself. What is going on with, what is the dilemma? Belief. Again, right from the very get-go of his ministry. Okay, he's... He had this great mountain, I'm going to put a mountain on here. He had this great mountaintop experience, right? God is with him. God, you're my son, and you I'm well pleased. He gets then into the wilderness experience, and Satan tempts him, but guess what he does? At the end of it, he comes out again on top, right? He's at the mountaintop. He's been victorious. He endured through it. He, he, he defeated Satan with the power of, of the word of God, right? And now he goes to Nazareth to begin among humanity. Not Satan, not the, the demon of old, not the, the, one, the ancient one of all, the liar, the ultimate of our, of our enemies, right? No, he's now just dealing with piddly little guys down here, right? Those us, us, us human beings who really have n- no power at all, right? And yet, what is the very first thing that happens? He says, look, I'm here. I'm here. Remember what God said? 
I'm sending, I'm sending my, my Savior to the world. I'm sending a Messiah. I'm sending the Christ. Here he is. And think about, if you and I think about this, think of all the things that have happened preceding this. The Immaculate Conception, the Magi coming, um, the baptism and the proclamation from heaven and the witnesses who saw that, right? I mean, all these things, the forerunner, John the Baptist, and how he fulfilled scripture. They, in his own hometown of all people, should have been putting together one plus one plus one, right? They should have been adding this all up in their head. But instead, what do they do? They come up against this thing. Wait a minute. He spoke, spoke with gracious words. Anybody look up that, that word gracious words, what that means? And that the, they were wondering about it. The people are wondering at the gracious words. Yeah, wondering is okay. Being awestruck or just amazed. Amazed. They are amazed. Have you ever had that happen where you've sat and listened to somebody who speaks or preaches and you're going, wow, that's really amazing. That's, that person's really got the power of God on them. When they speak, it's powerful. And you just are in awe. And that's what they're doing with Jesus. They're seeing him make these proclamations. Plus, they're probably also saying, wait a minute, he's saying this is fulfilled? I mean, their, their little hearts, if they had any glimmer at all within them of a truth, of a desire for the, for the Christ to be coming, for the Messiah to be coming, they had to be going, could this be? I wonder, could this be? And yet, what were they fighting against? But but isn't this just Joseph's son? And ultimately, what won out? That's right. They rejected him. So they rejected him. So Jesus' very first experience among man is rejection in his own hometown where they should have been able to add up all these pieces of fulfillment of Scripture and fulfillment of all these pro prophetic things, and they didn't do it. Oh, but he, but, but, well, but is that really how it, what, what was the response though that immediately follows it? Well, he starts taking them down. Yes. Why does he do that? He knows their heart. So although you may have seen it that way, the reality is the text, the rest of the text that follows explains to you what they actually were thinking. He understands they were actually in unbelief. Well, there was a pride about them. Yes. Well, well, I don't know that it's a pride that he belonged to them, but it was a it was a pride of of it being isn't he just Joseph's son? Go back. Go back to chapter I think it's chapter uh 2. Go back to chapter 3 verse um 23 because it has mentioned this once before about Joseph, him being Joseph's son. At, after his baptism, just before we get his lineage, one of the things that is revealed to us is people think that he is what? Just Joseph's son. So it it, it's a deflating thing where he's saying, look, God just told him from heaven, the skies opened and the voice spoke and said, this is my son. But then he goes into his lineage, and the lineage says, well, he's the son of Joseph, 
right? So there's this conflict with man's perspective versus what God says. Yes. Yes. Well, obviously, obviously the answer is yes. And because he traveled back, he would have gone back and there'd have been conversation and he brought with him disciples when he comes back, right? And they're all talking about it. And so the answer is yes, they would have known. Um, and, and the fact that he went down there, p- part of the reason that the answer is de- a definite yes on that too has to do with John the Baptist himself. Do you remember how infamous John the Baptist was at that time? And people were talking about him and, and this message that he got. Remember, we talked last week, how long had God been silent through a prophet? 400 years. When John the Baptist came out preaching, thus saith the Lord, and he spoke with this word of authority, and he spoke a word of repentance, he was fulfilling scripture of his coming as the, as the forerunner. Zacharias had announced that this is going to be the the forerunner, all these things are being talked about in this area. And when you go into Israel, you can see all these things are, even though it looks like it's a far distance, it's not. I mean, these are all fairly closely related. And remember, all these people come into Jerusalem on a regular basis for these sacrifices and feasts. It's not that far of a journey. Yeah, and they do, yes, but I'm just saying, it's not that far of a journey when this is an in, uh, an interneted group so to speak we think that because they didn't have tv and they didn't have internet and they didn't have computers and they didn't have email that there was not much going on in regards to knowing one another and communicating but that's not true because of their feasts and constantly coming back to jerusalem they're reconnecting on a regular basis with one another Elizabeth and Mary, for instance, when Mary had her vision, immediately she goes all the way up to Nazareth to see her, her uh, aunt, right? Elizabeth. I think it was cousin, sorry, her cousin. So there's, they, they are doing this. So don't, don't um, think that just because there's some distance on that map, that map is not it's really closer than you think, number one, but there's also a constant moving about of these people and they're interacting with one another. And then there's always word of mouth and travel. People are traveling and coming in to and fro all the time, right? John was infamous in that ta- time. The people knew about him. They knew that he was the prophesied forerunner. Zacharias made that clear. How many times do you think he repeated that story as John was growing up, right? Elizabeth's conception was immaculate, was a not immaculate conception like in, with Jesus or with Mary, but it was still a, a, a uh, supernatural thing. She should have never been able to get conceive at that point. That would have been talked about by everyone that knew her. And then someone who knew someone who knew someone, and the, the word would travel. Did you hear about that lady? She had this baby? And... And he was, by the way, he was the priest who stood at the temple in that year that all this occurred. And an angel appeared to him. And remember all the people outside and they were praying? They all witnessed. They all said, we know that he's had a vision. So, yes, they know. They know. Okay, so. All right, so they reject. Then the... um, 
rejection by his own friends in his hometown, by those who knew him and knew his story best, what can we learn from this part of the account for our own lives? Yeah. Our biggest opponents can be people that we are closest to, our own family members who should trust us, love us, and believe us, but they will reject us because of this example we see here. Yes, absolutely. Yes, you are absolutely right about that. Okay, so let's move on to the next part uh, because we are, gonna, we are definitely not getting through this. Uh, 31 to 41. <laughs> the next part is after, after Jesus is announces himself at, at, at Nazareth, we see him rejected by his own at Nazareth. So now he moves on. And what we learned from, I think it was a cross-reference that Kay took us to, right? Um, we learned that he, he goes to, uh, no, maybe that's in the next chapter. But this one, it says that he moves, it tells us in verse 31, he came down to Capernaum, a city in, of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So what did we learn about that? About that? Later, she asked you the question about um, him, being, him coming home, right? What, what was he talking about, coming home? Where was his hometown? It was Nazareth. So what is he saying in that? Yes. Okay. Since he was rejecting his own hometown, Capernaum then becomes his basically his his place of ministry, his base, his base for ministry work. And in there, and at that point, what does he do in Capernaum when he's there? He we see demonstra demonstrations of him teaching. What else? He, casting out demons and healing the sick. Now, what does that do? How does that relate back to what he just said when he made his announcement at Nazareth? The, okay, we see authority. We, as a matter of fact, one of the things that he actually says in the text that he preaches or he teaches with authority, right? And when he heals, he heals with power and authority. When he casts out demons, he does it with his power and authority. And the people are really <laughs> taken by that, right? Now, how does that fit or how does that follow what he said about um, when he makes his announcement in the previous? There you go. He's actually doing what he said. He said back in Nazareth to his own hometown, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, it's here. I'm, I'm it. This is me. And then what does he follow on in this record or this account? Because if this is a document written for a court situation in particular, I'm just thinking of that in my mind. It may or may not be. But if that's, in fact, what he's doing, what he's doing is he's saying, yes, he announced that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah. And then the very first thing you see him doing, not in his own hometown because they rejected him there, but he moves down to Capernaum. And in Capernaum, where he makes his base of ministry, he does all these things. He begins to teach. And, and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He begins to cast out demons, setting captives free. He begins to do um, miracles and, and healing of the sick, just as Isaiah 61 said, right? And he closes in 42 to 44, 31 to 41. So Jesus moves to Capernaum. I'm going to 
and he teaches, he heals, and he casts out demon. demons. Okay, so that's what he did in 31, uh, 31 to 41. Then 42, I guess I'll put it over here. 42 to 44 of chapter 4. What does he do there? What does he make? He makes another declaration because what's ha what happens once in Capernaum he starts doing all these things that he actually wanted to do in Nazareth, but they rejected him. When he starts to heal people and he starts to cast out demons and begins to, to teach with great power and authority, what happens as far as the response in Capernaum? There you go. They want to keep, actually, they just want to keep him all to themselves. And there's probably a great lesson in that if you're, if you're entering into ministry about, you know, particularly people whose ministry calling is to, you know, plant churches or to spread the gospel as missionaries. Uh, the idea that, he, that these people, once you go into a place and they really like you, how tempting would it be to just settle in? You guys really like me. You love me. So I'm just going to hang out with you guys right? I think about in the book of Acts, the same thing happened. Do you remember? It's talked about them in the book of Acts when the, when the Holy Spirit first fell upon them, and it talked about them being in fellowship and sharing of bread and so forth, and, it's, and, and they were all just happy, right? And then what did, Jesus, what did God do? He sent persecution. Why did he send persecution? to disperse them because he said to them go you therefore into all the world I want you to, to spread out they didn't want to they were really happy with the community of relationship they had at the moment and they would not have spread out if it had not been for persecution well Jesus shows that this also was his calling and he understood it Capernaum wanted to keep him all for their own and what did what did he say in 42 to 44 This is his purpose. His purpose is to teach. Um, I can't spell. Let me redo that. <laughs> to teach the kingdom of God. And I'm going to make my kingdom. This is my symbol for the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Does that? My little castle <laughs> with a cross on it. <laughs> he, his purpose is to teach the kingdom of God. So he makes it very clear to us what his purpose was for coming, right? Chapter 5, we're going to barely get into this one, but let's try, let's make an attempt at doing what we can here. We see in 1 through 11, what does Jesus begin to do? He calls disciples. And what does he call them to do? To be fishers of men because what were they before fish was a fish <laughs> it wasn't too far of a jump for him was it <laughs> um how does he go about bringing them into this ministry of being fishers of men what does he do he creates a miracle again so my question is then what do we learn about miracles in this process of things how are they what factor do they weigh in all of this what is their design purpose 
That's right. There's a passage in the Gospel of John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, and I say this to you guys a lot, but I'm just going to keep repeating it. But that is one of the things that Nicodemus actually makes a proclamation concerning Jesus. He says, we know that you are a man from God because no one could do these things that you do except that God be with him. So the fact that he was performing all these miracles was a testament to the fact that, he, that God was with him, or in this case, that he was God. Because what did Peter do? What was Peter's response when he, when he saw the miracle of the fish and so forth? Karen, go ahead. I'm a, I am a man, I am a, sin, I am a sinner. And w- he actually fell at Jesus' feet and worshipped. He fell at his feet, he made a confession, and Jesus did not reject it. He accepted that worship in that moment. I think that's just a beautiful picture there. Professed his, sin- his sinfulness. Um, what did you learn about disciples in your homework this week? What, what, uh, what constitutes what a disciple is, by the way? He's a student, okay, a student. What else? A follower, one who actually follows. As a matter of fact, with every one of the accounts that we see with this opening part in 1 through 11, and then later when he calls Levi again, in both cases, the response is, what do they do? They leave everything behind and they immediately follow him, right? So it's a follower. Peter fell at his feet, makes his profession, and then it says in verse 11, he, they, they left everything, not just Peter, but Peter, James, and John, they left everything and followed Jesus in that moment. These became the, his first disciples. They left everything. I wish we had time to expound on that. Okay, that's in 11. Then in 12 to 16, what happens? Okay, so Jesus begins again healing. And again, it's all about authenticating that his message is true, that his, his miracles authenticate the fact that he is actually who he's claiming to be. Jesus heals a man of leprosy. L-E-P-R-O-S-Y, is that correct? <laughs> uh, somewhere on one of my notes, I spelled leopard, the, a leopard as in a, the animal. And then it was, if I don't get it correct in my chart, just ignore me, okay? Just know I, what I meant and not what I said. Okay, um, so Jesus heals a man of leprosy. A man implored Jesus to make him clean. Jesus simply touches him, and immediately the leprosy leaves him. News was spreading and large crowds were gathering to hear him to be healed of sicknesses. What, would, what was Jesus doing then after he would do these things? So Jesus would, he was healing many, right? Not just this one man, but many, it says in verse 15, I think it was in 15. And then what does it then tell us about Jesus? What else does Jesus do? He slips away. Jesus, he slips away for prayer. Yes. Why do you think he does that? 
And what do we learn about that for our own personal walk with God? Okay, but you know, what happens when you're in the thick of ministry work and you're being drained, right? You're being drained. So what, what's needed for you and I, and what is he demonstrating to us as, as man in flesh, as, as God in flesh, what is he demonstrating to us in this record? That you can serve and serve and serve and give and serve and give, but at some point, what, what do you need to do? You need to retreat into a secluded place, into a place of wilderness. Wilderness does not just mean temptation, but sometimes wilderness can mean alone. Right. But this time, what you're seeing in the flow of thought is he's in the thick of the ministry work, and now he's retreating. What do you th- and what is the purpose then of that retreating time into a place that's quiet and alone and secluded? to recharge yeah he needs to recharge and so he's demonstrating that to you and I if you and I are in ministry and many of us in this room are doing ministry a lot of the time if we don't remember to retreat and and recharge our batteries reconnect with the source of the of the word of God reconnect with the the power of the spirit that abides within us through prayer if we don't go to that place we can become so exhausted if jesus who is god in flesh needed to retreat and recharge what does that tell you and i how much more more do we need it than he it's a great demonstration of what it is he's showing us about ministry (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was expending energy because he was a he was God in flesh, and so his flesh does weaken. He becomes hungry. He becomes distressed. He becomes exhausted. It, and we see this in Scripture over and over. What we are going to be seeing, and I want you to start paying attention to it. As I, I'm going to close this up, and I'm sorry I, di- I didn't get all the way through it. We missed the talking about the synagogue and the Sabbath. They're on my notes here. They're both really, really good insights. Um, but it goes on to show him calling Levi and um, also to talk about the Pharisees and how he teaches them by parables, what it is that he's teaching them, which is really good stuff, too. I we just ran out of time, but you know, you and I need to follow the pattern that Jesus is demonstrating to us, and what we need to be able to do as far as the execution of doing inductively this study, pay attention to what Jesus is showing to us as humans, as men of flesh, because he took on flesh, and he's demonstrating to us how we can have victory, Right? And if we don't pay attention to this, this is going to be, I think, a key key sort of that unlocks a lot of our insights in this book. Why is he giving us this message? What is, since since he credentials himself um, and he validates the things that he does and it's written down in a, a concise and consecutive manner so that we can learn from it. And he wants us to know the, the exact truth. Well, the exact truth about what? 
well, about who Jesus is, but also who we are in him and how we can walk in a manner that follows and patterns him.